Hello, you're about to listen to a recording from our TWT FM live session at the World Transformed Festival in Brighton. In case you didn't know, TWT FM is the World Transformed in-house podcast. It's a magazine style podcast with lots of different audio segments all pulled together around one big theme. At the World Transformed Festival this year, we try to bring the podcast to life in front of our very first live audience to explore the history and meaning of political meetings. For better or worse, meetings are an essential and unavoidable part of political organising. And yet the process and experience of meetings is something we tend not to think too deeply about. At their best, you leave a political meeting feeling energised, empowered, with an elevated sense of political agency. At worst, you feel emotionally drained and demoralised. I'm sure we've all been in lots of boring, frustrating, consciousness-deflating meetings. But we've also, hopefully, experienced a sense of freedom that comes from feeling like you have the power to change things. That might be the feeling that first brought you to the world transformed. The phrase freedom is an endless meeting, drawn from Francesca Paletta's book of the same name, neatly encompasses this paradox and serves as a good point of departure for exploring this theme as a whole. During the live session, we looked at experiments in radical and participatory democracy across history up to the present day. We asked what role meetings play in direct action and in the social lives of activists. To explore this theme, we were joined by a fantastically talented array of guests from across the TWT universe, including actors, musicians and writers. Together, we tried to make a case for political meetings as a means by which you can both organise and embody the social and political transformation we wish to see. So let's kick things off. We've got a lot of business to get through in this meeting. So please keep your points of order to a minimum and let's keep it comradely, guys. Calm down. Um, So, to begin, we want to cast our minds back in time to take a broad historical sweep of political meetings. How has the democratic process been experienced, extended, or diminished through political meetings? We are a podcast after all, so sound is primary. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we'll start that again. Uh, So we are a podcast after all, so sound is primary. Which is why we're going to ask you to all close your eyes, <laughs> if, you're com- if you feel comfortable to, so we can take you on an audio tour of political meetings from Athens to Zoom. We begin our tour in the 5th century BC on the Pnyx, a flat-topped hill in Athens. On one side, we can see the Acropolis and the Temple of Zeus. On the other is the beginnings of the Mediterranean Sea. This Greek city-state is the birthplace of democracy. The word democracy itself was coined here. The Greek word demos, meaning the citizens, and kratos, meaning power to rule. But ancient Greek direct democracy is quite different to the forms of representative democracy that we might think about today. Take a look around. All you can see is men in togas, 5,000 of them and not a woman in sight. Citizen Democrats in ancient Greece must be male, over the age of 18, and born to an Athenian father. 
Democracy of this kind has two preconditions. First, the community must be small enough so that citizens can attend debates and vote on issues. Second, its economy must give these citizens enough leisure time to engage in politics. In the ancient world, this meant that slaves did most of the work. Speaking of which, as we make our way to the outskirts of the gathering, you might be able to see a group of Scythian slaves returning from a patrol, serving as state police. They are carrying red ochre-stained ropes, which might have been used to dye the clothes of citizens who loiter in the Agora of Athens. Any citizen with red-stained clothes who is not in the meeting is shirking their democratic responsibility and liable for a penalty. From the center of the assembly, we hear a voice. We hear the voice of the herald call out. Uh, who wishes to speak? Each citizen has a voice in the assembly and is entitled to answer this request. But the reality is that there are just a few regular speakers. In effect, the leading politicians known as orators. Inevitably, charismatic leaders or people who can't keep quiet tend to dominate. Thucydides, the Athenian historian, paints a picture of ancient Democrats not so dissimilar to our own political class. Some legislators only wish to vengeance against a, uh, against a particular enemy. Others look out for themselves. They devote very little time or consideration of any public issue. They think that no harm will come from their neglect. They act as if it is always the business of somebody else to look after this or that. When this selfish notion is entertained by all, the Commonwealth slowly begins to decay. One such orator has responded to the Herald's invitation and is about to take the stage. Let's get going before he begins. Our next political meeting takes place in the year 1215 at a water meadow on the south side of the Thames, Runnymede. The English King John sits disgruntled at a table, quill in hand. Things haven't been going well for King John. He has pursued a disastrous foreign policy, levied heavy taxes on the barons, and has been excommunicated by the Pope. This series of unfortunate events has led to this very meeting, an attempt to appease his disgruntled barons. The document King John is about to sign is the Magna Carta, a document that would be later described as the greatest constitutional document of all time and a keystone of English liberty, law, and democracy. Which is high praise for a charter that merely sought to resolve a squabble among the upper echelons of the ruling class. Most of the charter's 63 clauses focused on the minutia of contemporary feudal issues and the interests of particular parties, regulating taxes, royal forests, the behavior of royal officials, and the standardization of wine, ale, and corn measures. But if we leave through the document, we get to clause 39. Uh, no free man shall be seized or imprisoned or stripped of his rights or possessions or outlawed or exiled or deprived of his standing in any other way, nor will we proceed with force against him or send others to do so except by the lawful judgment of his equals or by the law of the land. And then clause 40. To no one will we sell, to no one deny or delay right or justice. These clauses will resonate through the centuries and around the globe. They guarantee the freedom from unwarranted imprisonment and establish that the law was a power in its own right. In other words, the sovereign is no longer above the law. Yeah. King John dips his quill in the ink and begrudgingly places it on the parchment. If he fails to stick to the charter's terms, his property will be seized. 
It is in this very moment that the earliest strains of representative democracy are drawn. Good people give ear since times are so hard. For my song to the poor, it does pay some regard. For trade being dead, and weaving at a fall. But I hope in a few months, it will make men's for all. We now find ourselves in 1819, in the midst of a meeting in Manchester's St. Peter's Fields, and things are about to get out of hand. The crowd numbers 60,000 and is packed densely. They have travelled from across Lancashire to demand the reform of parliamentary representation, carrying banners bearing slogans such as Liberty and Fraternity and Unity is Strength. They demand a louder voice in Parliament because right now the industrial north is currently devastatingly underrepresented, even at a time when just 2% of British people have the right to vote. There is a sense of anticipation and electricity in the air. This energy and determination has alarmed the magistrates of the day who order the arrest of its principal speakers, Joseph Johnson, no relation, and Henry Orator Hunt, no relation. The amateur cavalry of the Manchester and Salford Yeomanry answered the call, after a pint or two at the local pub, of course. As they arrive at St. Peter's Field, Times correspondent John Dias begins documenting the events that unfold before his eyes. After a moment's pause, the cavalry drew their swords and brandished them fiercely in the air, upon which Hunt no relation. and Johnson, no relation. the main speakers at the event, desired the multitude to give three cheers to show the military that they were not to be daunted in the discharge of their duty by their unwelcome presence. This they did, upon which Mr. Hunt again proceeded. He trusted that they would all stand firm. Unfortunately, this was not the case. The cavalry charged into the crowd, knocking down a woman, killing a child, and apprehending Hunt and Johnson. In the ensuing riot, a further 18 people were killed and around 600 injured. For this very reason, the event became known as the Peterloo Massacre, a name which mockingly compared the cavalry and soldiers who attacked and killed unarmed civilians with the veterans who had recently returned from the battlefield of Waterloo. We now find ourselves in a smoky room filled with arguing Russians. At the centre of the gathering of 50 sits an intense, bald-headed man with a neat beard and another intense, mustachioed man with a mass of wavy hair. These men are Vladimir Lenin and Leon Trotsky and the mistrust between the pair is palpable. This is the 1903 meeting of the Second Congress of the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party. But the glasses of Lenin and Trotsky do not contain vodka, but ale, for the setting of the meeting is the Three Johns pub in Islington. In this pub, we are witnessing a decisive moment in the development of Bolshevism, which would eventually lead to the October Revolution of 1917 and the emergence of the USSR. This meeting marked the decisive break between reformist and revolutionary strategies within various factions of the RSDLP, with Lenin leading the Bolsheviks, Russian for majority, and the Men against the Mensheviks, or minority. Lenin's faction had narrowly lost the vote on the nature of party leadership, but as the meeting progressed, seven anti-Lenin delegates walked out over other disagreements, and with his opponents depleted, 
Lenin won a crucial vote. This vote in a North London pub would lead 14 years later to Lenin eventually seizing power and attempting to instill the extreme democracy of the dictatorship of the proletariat back in Moscow. We now move from a pub to a church. The year is 1968, and we find ourselves in the back room of the Church of the Three Crosses in uptown Chicago, a white area of a deeply segregated city. A skinny black man in beret and turtleneck is speaking to denim-clad members of the entirely white Young Patriots organization. That man is Bobby Lee, section leader of the Black Panthers, in a meeting that would begin the process of creating Fred Hampton's rainbow coalition between the Panthers, poor white street gangs, and the Latinx Young Lords organization. Lee is introduced by a member of the YPO and takes to the stage. I'm a section leader of the Black Panthers. You have to tell us what we can do together. We come here with our hearts open. You cats supervise us where we can be of help to you. He continues to call out their common problems. There's pr police brutality up here. There's rats and roaches. There's poverty up here. That's the first thing we can unite, unite on. That's the common thing we have, man. The crowd appear to be won over. Subsequently, members of the Young Patriots will stop wearing Confederate flags on their jackets out of respect for the Panthers. The success of the Rainbow Coalition in fostering class-based multiracial resistance to police violence was a crucial step in building working-class power in 60s America. In an interview, Lee recounted a moment of powerful solidarity which sprung from the coalition. Once, I was in a meeting in Uptown, and I decided to leave by myself. I immediately determined that the police were following me. I made the mistake of leaving alone. The cop called out, you know what to do, and I put up my hands against the wall. Preacher man came outside and saw what was going on, and in the cold of winter, brought the men, women, and the children outside. The cops put me in the car, and they totally surrounded it, demanding my release. The cop called someone, and they must have told him to let me go. I'll never forget looking at all those brave motherfuckers standing in the light of the police car, but staring in the face of death. Looking back, was there enough basis for unity? Hell yeah. Next, we return to Islington, North London, to a brightly lit and wood-panelled restaurant. The year is 1994, the 90s in all its garish, yuppie horror. Button-down denim shirts, pastel colours, loafers, jumpers tied round waists, goatees, Britpop. Two of the leading lights of New Labour are tucking into a plate of modern British cuisine. <laughs> this is the Granita restaurant site of the infamous Granita Pact between Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. After years of denial, Brown eventually admitted that the two had met following the unexpected death of incumbent Labour leader John Smith to make a gentleman's agreement. They agreed that in the subsequent leadership election, Brown would step aside, giving Blair a clear path to victory. In exchange, Blair agreed to hand over power after two terms. As we know, he never carried out his side of the deal. In 2003, 
columnist Tom Brown told the BBC... I'm in absolutely no doubt there was a deal since Gordon phoned me the morning after it was made and, and told me about it. But, but at the same time, I also believe that both men left the restaurant with a different version of the deal in their minds. They hadn't actually written it down on paper. In 2003, the Granita restaurant closed its doors, making way for a Tex-Mex restaurant called Desperados. And then, in 2013, an estate agent. Unfortunately, the legacy of the Blair Brown Granita meeting will outlast its restaurant namesake in the anti-democratic maneuvering and attempts to disempower members by certain Labour leaders who need not be named. You have no authority here, Jackie Weaver. No authority at all. And finally... Uh, you're on mute, sorry. I'm sure we've all sat in innumerable Zoom meetings over the past two years. We even hosted the whole of last year's festival yeah, over Zoom. You're, uh, you're still on mute. We might be bored of it, but Zoom and other online conferencing technology has definitely enabled a huge expansion in the democratic process, making holding large meetings easier and cheaper than ever before, not to mention more accessible. Ben, sorry, you're still on mute. Of course, Zoom has its problems, from tech barriers to despotic bureaucrats who can simply remove people from meetings. But it's hard to put the genie back in the bottle. Ben, you're muted. Uh, but now we have returned to the present day, we must ask ourselves, is this new normal here to stay? Okay, well, you're going to have to say all that again because you were on mute the whole time. <laughs> Give it up for Ben Norris and Sam Swan. Next up, we have some music from the World Transform's very own folk singer and residence, the brilliant Rob Howard. We asked Rob to find a song about political meetings, but then he got roped in to running tech at the festival. And so, with limited time, he went for a safer option. Take it away, Rob. This first one is, is by Chumbawamba. <laughs> who, who were at the festival, I mean, or Dunstan was at the festival yesterday. And we did the film, she showed the film yesterday and Matt did the Q&A and it was really great. And then I played this song afterwards as people were leaving and then realised he'd left the band by that point. So. <laughs> but it's called, um, why don't they give me the sack? Six in the morning don't want to wake Sun laying low And the world sleeping late oh. Hate like the river Runs heavy and deep Oh, I wish they would sack me And leave me to sleep Five days from seven, the week's hardly mine The alarm clock's gone over to enemy line Waste my time working for cowards and creeps Oh, I wish they'd just sack me and leave me to sleep the window heralds the day rain won't you wash these eight hours away
rain feeds the river, runs heavy and deep. Oh, I wish they'd just sack me and leave me to sleep. so little pay I just want a day off for a week's holiday Done with this mountain that's gotten so steep I just wish they would sack me and leave me to sleep Birds at my window sing in the dawn by the time that I'm home, all this day is done Spending my life sowing what others will reap Oh, I wish they'd just sack me and leave me to sleep Rain strikes the window, heralds the day Rain, won't you wash these eight hours away? Rain feeds the river that runs so deep Oh, I wish they'd just sack me and leave me to sleep Oh, I wish they'd just sack me and leave me to sleep Big thanks to Rob Howitt for that stirring rendition of Chumbawamba's I Wish That They'd Sack Me. Every year, the World Transform Festival takes place in parallel to the Labour Party Conference. But what is the Labour Party Conference and why should we care? Our next speaker is someone who knows just what it's like to be on that buzzing conference floor. He's a lecturer at UCL and the former chair of Battersea Labour. Here is Matteo Tiratelli. So we wanted to talk to Matteo because we wanted to ask you first... Can you give us a bit of a history of like where has conference come from and what role does it perform like for Labour? The weird thing about conference is that loads of political parties don't have conferences at all. So the Tory party don't have a conference. They have a kind of get together in Manchester. They do some speeches. In the US, they have conventions every four years where they get together, do some speeches. Uh, but the Labour party comes from a very particular tradition and the Labour party is really a, a product of conferences. So in 1899, the Labour Party was kind of first formed out of a, a special conference that was called by the Trade Union Congress. And it's, it's as 19th century as it sounds, right? It's uh, a way of getting people uh, who live across the UK and work in different industries together to decide on a common political strategy. Uh, and that leads from 1899, 1900, they launched the first 
deliberate attempt to get labor representation in parliament, and that's labor with a little L, not a capital L. They're just looking to get working class trade unionists elected across the country. It only becomes the labor party that we have today a few years later at another conference where they decide that they're gonna have a name and they decide they're gonna have a structure that, uh, that kind of we have inherited today. Um, I think the central, if you read the Labour Party rule book, the first line about conference is that conference is the sovereign decision-making body of the Labour Party. And that's a very grand uh, way of saying that in theory, conference is the one that makes all the big decisions. But really, from the very beginning, you've seen this incredible tension between what's decided at conference, what the unions do on their own time, and what the parliamentarians do. Because the MPs, because they're elected, aren't actually uh, legally bound to do anything that conference tells them. And that's been really the central divide which has, w over which conference has like fought back and forth over the last 121 years. And you can see, and I, 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 I picked three examples from, from history to give you a sense of like how these divides have played out. So in the, in the very early period, the Labour Party was led by Keir Hardy, who some of you might know, uh, founder of the Inter Independent Labour Party, which was like a predecessor socialist group. Um, and he, he very early on when the Labour Party was formed, he said explicitly that if conference ever decided that the Labour Party shouldn't back suffrage for women, he would resign from the party. And he was the leader at the time. And in some ways, that's a kind of him saying, conference, you can't control me. I can do what I want, and I support suffrage for women. But at the same time, he recognized that conference was sovereign over the party, because he would have to leave it if he wanted to stay true to his own beliefs, and he would have to be somewhere else to support them. And you'll see how that attitude is not the attitude that lots of uh, later generations of Labour Party <laughs> politicians have held. So in the 1960s, there's a really famous fight that happens over two Labour Party conferences. Uh, in 1960, um, a really massive campaign, particularly in the trade unions, um, forces the Labour Party at conference to adopt a position of nuclear disarmament. So unilateral nuclear disarmament, Britain's going to get rid of all its nuclear weapons. And Hugh Gateskill, who is the kind of right-wing uh, trade unionist leader of the Labour Party at the time, he vows to fight, fight, and fight again to bring back sanity to our party. And he does that. He spends all of 1960 organizing, uh, organizing in the trade unions, organizing in the constituency Labour Parties. And in 1961, he reverses that policy. So again, he clearly doesn't really care that Labour made a decision in 1960 to get rid of nuclear weapons. But he does still think conference matters enough that he's prepared to spend a year of his time fighting to get that decision overturned at the next conference. And actually that sets in train like a long tradition in the 1960s where Labour Party conference becomes really stage managed. It's, uh, it, it becomes, a, there's very few kind of rebellions against the leadership and the trade unions mostly help to support the leadership on all, all the key issues. How long do you want me to talk for? Interrupt me. Keep going, keep going. Okay, okay. <laughs> so the lecturer, so he, you know, he's, I can keep he, going. if you can't tell. <laughs> um, so those are two examples, right? We've, there's already a little bit of a shift going on in terms of how much, how much MPs believe that they are beholden to conference. Um, what happens when Blair comes to power in 97? Uh, well, actually, before he comes to power in the 1990s, uh, after 1994, after the Granita Pact that we just heard about, uh, he, he becomes obsessed with what he calls a good conference. It's kind of a weird euphemism that he uses very explicitly. And that's because at the first party conference, 
he gets roundly defeated. He's been elected leader. He thinks he can do whatever he wants. He tries to reform Clause 4, which he eventually does manage. But the first time round, he's defeated on the conference floor on issue after issue. And he decides, him and the people around him, particularly Alistair Campbell, decide we're never going to let this happen again. And so they develop a, a specialist team within Labour HQ who spend all year working on managing conference. And what that means is they have lists of everyone who's coming. They give all of them a grade, grades A to D. A is strong supporters, D, lost cause. <laughs> um, and, they, and they work really hard to manage all of these different people and to make sure all of them turn up and vote the Blair line. And that's what we've seen kind of resurrected uh, over the last few days here, where we had delegates being pulled aside, those who the bureaucrats had identified as being people who were kind of floating, sometimes voting with the leadership, sometimes voting against the leadership. Uh, and they were then being talked to by senior, senior MPs and being given a line to follow carefully in the main room. Um, and I think what you can see then is clearly they're concerned with conference because conference is something that the media report on. And the one thing Blair really hated was bad press coverage. And so there's a, there's a, a real interest in managing conference, um, but a sense that they're not really taking it very seriously as a democratic body. It's clearly not a sovereign decision-making entity. What I think is really interesting that has just happened this week, in fact, yesterday, uh, is that Labour Party conference passed a really good motion on uh, Israel and Palestine committing to not particularly radical demands, but committing to not, um, to not buying products from um, uh, goods that are produced inside of the occupied territories. Um, it's a fairly minor demand, but framed in, in quite good language. And immediately afterwards, Lisa Nandi and Keir Starmer said, uh, and let me quote, we cannot support this motion. And what's interesting is they said that after the motion had already been passed. They didn't express an opinion on whether or not it was a good idea beforehand, but they said, it's a motion, you've passed it and we're not going to support it. And that's kind of been the status quo uh, under this leadership. But even, to be honest, uh, under the last leadership, um, there have been things that have been passed at conference that no one has any intention of actually putting into a Labour manifesto. And that tension between the, decision, the sovereign decision-making body and uh, the actual actions of MPs is one that has, has grown further and further apart over the years. But... Uh, I don't want to make you think that there's absolutely no point in Labour Party conference. I'm a, I'm a delegate. Uh, I've been a delegate many times. Um, and <clears throat> I think there are... That relationship has shifted over the years, right? There have been moments where Labour governments have been really receptive to what happens at conference. So the 1945 Attlee government felt itself to be really bound by conference decisions. And they really saw conference as setting the goals to which they would then work as parliamentarians and as government officials. Um, they were setting goals that they would try and actually achieve in government. Um, and so there are models historically of how that can, how that can work really well as a system um, where conference sets, sets programs and MPs then come up with policies that will help us to actually get there. And rather than thinking about conference in a kind of legal and kind of liberal way as being, well, there's this rule, but the rule doesn't matter because the parliamentarians have a different source of power, so there's this inevitable conflict and we can't do anything about it and we're all going to give up and go home. A much more materialist way of thinking about it is, well, what is it that gives the MPs the power to ignore conference? And what can we then do as ordinary members to try and make conference stronger, to increase our sense of power over those MPs, to actually hold them to account on the decisions that we make? Um, 
And that comes from all sorts of places. I'm sure some of you will have ideas about how that could happen. Um, obviously, the press is a big one. Uh, nobody likes a bad conference, certainly not Tony Blair and certainly not Peter Mandelson, who still has an undue amount of influence within the Labour Party. Um, so there are ways that we can think of doing that beyond just uh, peer, the sort of press and the optics of it. But I think that is the real central challenge for us as activists, is to think materially about how we can improve and increase the power of conference uh, and increase its oversight over MPs. So I'll leave it there. Brilliant. Matteo Tiratelli, hard-working conference delegate. Give it up. Thank you to Matteo Tiratelli for that comprehensive overview of Labour conferences past and present. The World Transformed is only made possible by the contributions of our supporters. In the last year, the number of people giving a small regular donation to TWT has grown from 250 to 850. Their contributions have enabled us to put more time and resources into year-round education, hire our biggest staff team yet, and move into a permanent office for the first time. If you'd like to see the world transformed grow even more in the next year, we need your help. Please consider making a monthly donation of as little as £1 at bit.ly slash TWT donate. That's bit.ly slash TWT donate. Remember, you can also head to theworldtransformed.org to watch video, listen to more audio and access resources on how to imagine, demand and build a world transformed. We move now to what is arguably one of the most vibrant and radical experiments of democratic participation in the form of a political meeting, albeit a very big and chaotic political meeting. Last month, Occupy Wall Street marked its 10-year anniversary, and to talk about what went down in Zuccotti Park in 2011, we were joined by the journalist, author and luminary of the American left, Sarah Jaffe. So, broad question to start with, I guess. In a nutshell, what was Occupy? Like, how did it start? <laughs> like, how, how did these people hanging out in a park turn into something a bit more meaningful? Yeah. Um, the funny thing about Occupy is, like, I knew a bunch of people who had actually been trying to start a U.S. uncut, like the U.S. version of U.K. uncut, which I assume at least some of you know about, were part of, etc. And they had been doing a very bad job at it. Um, and so some of those same people saw this call that went out from Adbusters magazine with, you know, everybody's probably seen the beautiful graphic with the ballerina on the Wall Street bull and said Occupy Wall Street on September 17th, which was just kind of a random date, apparently, that people picked. And so I was a little bit like, I don't think these people are very good at organizing things. But some other people turned up at the meetings that were good at organizing things, including everybody from David Graeber, who of course um, we're all familiar with, to a bunch of young labor organizers who um, were doing a lot of Occupy organizing while on technically on the clock at various trade unions they worked for. And somehow the thing came together and they were going to try to occupy actual Wall Street, but of course the NYPD wasn't interested in that. And so they managed to camp out in Zuccotti Park because of a weird public-private partnership that owns that land with the city and Brookfield Partners. Why do I remember all these details? And yeah, because of that, that park is open 24 hours. And so they could not legally be evicted. Of course, a few months later, they would be evicted. But... That is sort of how they stayed, which wasn't really anyone's plan. And then suddenly it metastasized. And we could talk more about police violence being part of that if you want. 
No, thank you. So they all turn up, a bunch of people turn up in this park. Um, and at what point do they decide? Because a lot of people just think about Occupy as this big protest, but actually it was like a fascinating experiment in right. political meetings. Like, to what extent yeah. do you think? Like, was that pre-planned? Did that mm -hmm. just, like, they suddenly yeah. try and work around it? Yeah, so a lot of the things that went on at Occupy in New York were, I mean, some of it were, like, things we were talking about before with the what do we like about meetings? Do we like or do we hate the hand gestures? <laughs> um, but, so some of that was being used in the planning meetings, things like consensus process. Um, David Graeber wrote some pieces about sort of how that was hashed out. Other things like the people's mic where people would go like, you know, I'm Sarah and I think we should march on Wall Street right now and everybody would repeat it, came because this, the cops were um, enforcing the ban on amplified sound. So they had to figure out a way to amplify sound and like it got really annoying it did, it got really, really annoying. But at first, when you were sort of standing in the middle of it, and especially like when there, you know, if there were like a couple thousand people in the park and you would get like multiple rings of the people's mics, so you could like repeat it back so that everybody could hear it. It was actually amazing to sort of be in the middle of um, and to hear people and it, it kind of discouraged some of those awful things that we were talking about, about political meetings, like people filibustering forever. You couldn't do that. You couldn't speechify on the people's mic. You had to keep it simple. And then people would say it along with you. And it was kind of interesting, because if somebody said something really wacky, the people's mic would kind of just die out, because nobody wanted to repeat the thing. So it, it aided in consensus in that way. Um, and of course, like nobody still wants to do consensus process and, and the people's mic um, ended up both used as like a tactic of protest. Um, people would shut down things like um, shareholder meetings of the big banks and stuff by just like popping up and, and repeating the thing that the last person had said. There's really great video out there of um, Occupy teachers going to the New York, um, it's a panel on educational policy, and just shutting the whole damn thing down by doing this. And at first, nobody knew what to do with it. After a while, sort of cops and officials figured out that you just sort of let them do it, and then they were done. But yeah, so these things that, that you know, had their moment, um, I think contributed to that spirit of feeling like an, an experiment in democracy, an experiment in participation, and of like being a part of things, which is just not a thing that a lot of people, unless you know we're grumpy old socialists, um, have the experience of being part of anymore, right? Like un trade union density in the US is 12%, right now it is 6% in the private sector. Um, a lot of things that people used to be part of in various ways in their communities are gone. Communities are being destroyed by deindustrialization. People, um, younger people are, have to move around a lot for work. So like we don't have a lot of spaces where you can feel like you're part of something and you can feel like a lot of people support it, a lot of people are interested in it and like that it, that it meant something. Um, and you know, I, I think that festivals like this one obviously are, are designed to sort of bring about that same set of feelings and that's why we're all gonna be really sad tomorrow, right? I'm gonna be really sad tomorrow because I'm gonna be on a plane back to New York. <laughs> Speaking of New York. Yeah, hopefully you can restart Occupy once you're there. Oh, but, um, God. <laughs> I wanted to ask I'm as well. Occupy old Stein Gardens, people. Yeah, <laughs> I'm too old to sleep in parks. Some of y'all can do that if you want to. <laughs> My hips hurt. 
Um, yeah, I wanted to pick up on that point you made um, or intimated towards about um, people kind of becoming a bit disillusioned with consensus decision-making. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you, I don't know, A, gradually experienced over the course of Occupy? And also, I kind of get the sense that after Occupy, lots of um, political groups try to implement consensus decision-making yeah. as a kind of goal, but maybe that kind of enthusiasm waned. What are maybe some of the reasons you think that that... Yeah, I mean, it, it got unwieldy for a variety of reasons. And like, I was there as a journalist, so I was really not participating in like decision making in those ways. Um, but, you know, what happens when you've got thousands of people coming through the thing at any one time is like, who gets to be part of the consensus process? And then you've got thousands of people and one person can get up and block it. And, and you know, people did find innovative and exciting ways to filibuster on the people's mic. Um, and... Yeah, 100% consensus is actually really hard to achieve. And so you end up sometimes, you know, getting down to like very lowest common denominator things. And then the other thing that happened, and I mentioned the police violence, is that like Occupy in New York and several other places essentially just became like a protracted standoff with cops to be able to hold onto the space. And so at some point people had to decide like, is holding the space actually the most important thing? Maybe it is. I think the space being there for a while was really, really important. And you know, in the absence of that, it's, it's hard for people to find their way to things, right? Like if you are not in certain circles, how do you find your way to TWT? I mean, I guess you guys put up posters around Brighton, which was great, but you know. Um, it's still, you still have to get a wristband and walk in through the thing and you can't just sort of show up and be like, oh, okay, yeah, that's what's happening. Judith Butler's giving a speech over there. Um, <laughs> whoever that might be, if you, you know, unless you're me, most people didn't know who she was, but they were. Um, so, yeah, so a lot of these things proved sort of imperfect, but still useful experiments. Um, I think, you know, people find consensus, 100% consensus, really important in like small, direct action groups where like you have to have a lot of trust because you're taking a lot of risk. Whereas it's not really necessary to decide if you're gonna like take a group of people from the park and like just march down Wall Street sort of yelling that bankers are bad. And yeah, like I think, is that, could you make the point, like what, the relationship between um, in Occupied between having a political meeting and direct action. Mm -hmm. Like, did that kind of break down? I think there was like criticisms you'd hear about Occupy that kind of became too preoccupied with um, creating kind of alternative society and that yeah. notion of how you're gonna like broaden it out was lost a little bit. Yeah, I think one of the things that was always interesting about Occupy, and I was just talking about this with Jonathan Weston, who's the director of New York Communities for Change, which is like a group that mostly organizes in black and immigrant communities in New York City, that are very, you know, were, those were not the people who were sleeping at Occupy, right? It was like working class people from the outer boroughs. That was really not who was sleeping in the park. But he was saying, he's like, you know, but our members got it. And they didn't feel the need to go sleep in the park to do that. But like when you look at the polling on Occupy, it had like majority support in America. You know, when they started doing other things that did become sort of more direct action-y like um, occupying homes, moving people back into vacant homes or keeping or preventing um, evictions, that kind of work. 
Um, you know, I remember saying to my mother, who is a very conservative Republican, like, yeah, well, these folks, you know, this house is vacant and these people are homeless. And they said, screw this, we're moving people into vacant homes. And my mother's like, oh yeah, I support that. You know, and there was, there was a way that it, um, it resonated beyond the actual space you were in, but that also meant that a lot of people at the end of the day were not really interested in being in an endless political meeting all the time. And there is tension between that, right? That like, I'm a nerd. I'm also a you know single woman in my 40s who does politics all the time. So like, this is my idea of a great four days. Um, a lot of people are exhausted by the thought of however many meetings over you know four days, let alone like an occupation that you're fighting cops to maintain for three months, right? Um, and when we say fighting cops, like people that I know were singled out by the cops, they were harassed at home. Um, one of them was picked up, brought onto a police bus, and they whacked his head on every seat walking through. Like there was real um, just brutality on all sorts of ways. I mean, one of the ways that Occupy took off was this video, a lot of you've probably seen it, of this police officer having kettled this group of people and just pepper spraying this young, clearly unarmed, because she was barely wearing any clothes, woman, straight in the face. And that went viral in these kind of ways. Like, people were like, holy crap, that's terrible. We can't let that happen. But also, like, at the end of the day, like, how many people are gonna sort of volunteer for that kind of abuse over and over again? Um, it was really hard and it really, um, yeah, it takes away from the ability to be part of democratic participation if you're literally getting assaulted by the cops to try to be part of a big old protest in you know, a public park. Cool. And so finally, I guess, like the legacy of Occupy seems to be kind of quite heavily contested. Its achievements are contested. It's, it's kind of lasting impact on the left. But do you think there are any aspects of it? I mean, what, are, what are the takeaways that we could maybe, you know, that we could, we could pick up now? Are there any aspects? Is it is the notion of occupying space? Is that still important? Um, oh, it just holds it. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think first of all, like tactics and then things like that that we learned from it can be very important. Um, people have certainly returned to occupying, taking space, reclaiming vacant homes and um, eviction defenses during the pandemic and another massive housing crisis, right? Um, also, you know, there was this meme that I really loved the first time Bernie Sanders ran for president and it was a picture from the top was from Occupy and it was like a quote from somebody being like, you guys need to get serious about electoral politics if you want to make any change. And then like below it was a Bernie Sanders rally that said, you little shits. <laughs> but you know, that was the thing, right? People would always be like, oh, you occupiers, you're not going to accomplish anything unless you get electoral, all right, okay. We'll get this grumpy old Jewish congressman to run for president. And, um, you know, like, I, I Zephyr Teachout, who um, did not win her congressional race, um, but ran for several offices, sort of trying to take out Andrew Cuomo, whatever. I met Zephyr in the park on the day that Occupy was evicted and ended up, or actually in the courtroom the day that Occupy was evicted in the emergency hearing to get, try to get them the right to get back in there. You know, there are so many people who have like moved into mainstream politics who have their roots in places like that or later things, right? AOC famously sort of got radicalized by Standing Rock, which is another encampment of holding space in that case to block a pipeline and protect the water supply for the Standing Rock people, right? So 
there's so many echoes of this thing all over the place that I think, um, and I think that the support among white people for Black Lives Matter and particularly for arguments around police violence is higher because a lot of people experienced it for the first time being part of Occupy and realize that this is not just something that happens in black communities in the outer boroughs or in Brixton or, or you know Tottenham, but actually also happens in central London to nice white people. And actually maybe the cops are bad. So there are so many routes and it's just really like, I mean, I'm a journalist, so like that means I'm supposed to draw conclusions on things that are happening right now, which I find actually really annoying, which is why I keep trying to write books instead. Um, but, you know, I, I, I it's still too soon to say like what the effects of this are because we're still all out there having been changed by it. Sarah, thank you so, so much. Uh, have a very safe journey back and we hope to see you back on our shores very, very soon. Um, uh, so I think you can, you can never get too much of a good thing. So we're very excited to welcome back to the stage TWT FM's musician in residence, Rob Howard. I'm going to sing a fairly well-known song. Um, oops, Daisy. Written by Paul Robeson about uh, a member of the IWW, IWW who was killed. He was executed, uh, supposedly because he killed two policemen, but people don't think he did. And um, yeah, I guess the IWW, very good organizers. Um, I went to one of their meetings and it was actually quite fun. <laughs> and they always used to say, uh, plan every meeting as if a thousand people are gonna be there, because one day they will. So I guess that optimism is very good. Um, and now a miserable song about a map. It's not miserable, it's actually quite a hopeful song about though, you know, ideas outlive people, I guess. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, said he. I never died, said he. In Salt Lake City, Joe, says I, him standing by my side. They framed you on a murder charge. Says Joe, I never died. Says Joe, I never died. The copper bosses, they shot you, Joe. They filled you full of lead. Takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, and I ain't dead. Says Joe, and I ain't dead. Smiling there, as big as life Smiling with his eyes 
Says Joe what they could never kill Went on to organize Went on to organize I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night Alive as you and me Says I but Joe you're ten years dead I never died said he I never died said he In San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where working folk are out on strike It's there you'll find Joe Hill It's there you'll find Joe Hill I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night Alive as you and me Says I but Joe you're ten years dead I never died said he 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 Nice one. Who needs Joan Baez, eh? Now, we all know the World Transform puts on amazing festivals, throws great parties, and is home to the finest socialist magazine-style podcast in the land. But TWT also has its very own research branch and recently conducted a study looking at political meetings. We were grateful to be joined by Peter and Fiona from TWT's research group to share their insights on what makes political meetings successful and how they might be made more democratic and more inclusive and less dry. Yeah, so my name is Fiona. This is Peter. Um, we're from the research working group um, within TWT. Um, and the working group really emerged from a project um, that uh, we worked on um, in 2019-2020, looking at political education projects across the UK. Um, and we uh, surveyed and interviewed um, over 100 organisers of different political education projects in really varied contexts. So there were political theatres, there were um, projects in CLPs, um, there were uh, book clubs, um, a huge range of groups. And we were just really interested in um, finding out what was going on, um, what... Uh, what people felt like they were really achieving and what was going well, and what also they were really struggling with um, in the hope that we as TWT might be able to think about um, how we could contribute to creating a, a stronger culture of, of political education in the UK. Um, yeah, and we wanted to just share a couple of reflections from that research and also from the wider um, reflections of the research group, which has been kind of taking an internal look at um, TWT and how we work. And so, yeah, when we were... We were initially told about this freedom is an endless meeting theme. We were actually like pretty into it because it, it spoke a lot to, I mean, you know, obviously how we understand politics, which is like, you know, organizing can be hard, often pretty mundane, but also it's always going to be like ongoing and, you know, freedom isn't something that we just have, it's something we have to do and we have to, you know, keep doing it. And so the question for us is really like, well, then how do we do it better? Um, so that's what we've been exploring and, and, and really then one thing right at the beginning of our group, we read a text together by Olafemi Teo, and it's called um, Being in the Room Privilege. And that's sort of framed how we're thinking about this, about, you know, about being in the room. And in that text, he's really talking about sort of like 
things about sort of solidarity and race and class and gender. But we sort of, what we really took for it was about how we thought about our practice at TWT. Um, and there really two questions, I guess, came from that, which is like one, you know, who is in the room? This sort of pretty basic question about, you know, I mean, when we think about TWT, who are we speaking to? Who's part of it? But also like a second question, which is like, you know, once we're in the room, how have we organized that room? So who is able to navigate it? Who, who can speak? Who doesn't? Um, and so, yeah, I guess maybe do you want to take it on the first point there? Mm. Yeah, uh, so this idea of who is and who isn't able to get into a room, into a meeting in the first place was um, such a big theme in the research um, when we asked people what was the biggest challenge that they faced in their political um, education work. 50% of people said that the biggest thing was getting the people, um, the right people in the room. And that was across all kinds of different projects uh, working in really different contexts. So who the right people were really varied, but there were some um, themes that came up. So people said they wanted more young people in their spaces. Um, people working um, in local areas, working at the local level, said that they felt their rooms weren't representative of um, everyone who lived locally. Um, there was an over-representation of middle-class people in their rooms and white people in their rooms. Um, and others talked about how they wanted to reach people who hadn't had um, many educational opportunities before um, and people who, they, who um, didn't already agree with them. And that was something that participants in these projects also talked about. They were frustrated that they found that um, they didn't have enough sort of different opinions in the room or disagreement in the room even. That's something they were looking for. Um, at the same time, um, where there was one group who was struggling to reach or to engage a particular um, group of participants, uh, there was another group who was doing that work really, really effectively. So what it kind of um, reminded me of was the importance of us really sharing um, experiences um, of working with people and doing political education with people in very different contexts and making sure that we're working in partnership with one another. Um, so how has this kind of question of who's in the room come up within TWT and within the thinking of the research working group, would you say? Um, well, I mean, I guess it's like the perennial question, because if you want to, you know, build, you know, if TWT wants to build this like generation left or this like generation of organizers, activists, thinkers, then how we, how we get those people in the room and how we do it is like an important question. And I honestly, like, I don't think we have like definitive answers for that. But I mean, I guess one practical step. So one of, um, you know, one of the people in our group has sort of trying to propose like a buddying program. And like, so the idea would be if you want to get people in the room, like this buddying program gets them there. But also, once they're in the room, then you're also helping them sort of like, I don't know, find their way around it, find their feet. Mm. So, I mean, that's sort of like a practical step with the way of thinking about and want to propose. Great. Yeah, and so then thinking about um, this second point of once you're, once you're in the room, how do you make sure that you're creating a space that isn't just replicating the sort of um, power relations of, of domination that we see in the rest of society? Um, what kinds of conversations have you had about this in the research group? Um, over the last year or so? Um, so this was, this was one of those ones where actually it was really just really relevant in our research group, which actually was, it's really hard like running groups and running meetings and trying to get on like a common project. And what we tried to do was, um, so we had, we tried to like set up these really like egalitarian meetings, but it came like this kind of tyranny of structuralness thing where in trying to have it sort of like a really liquid structure and no hierarchy, just all the same people just spoke, all the same people didn't speak and you know, it was dominated in a particular way. And so then we, we addressed it, like, and this sounds really boring and I realize it's like really mundane, but like we just actually like kind of like 
put some hierarchy back into it. So we put like, we had these sort of structures where we'd like rotate the chair and rotate who presented and like rotate the duties. And so like by having the meetings like hierarchical, but like then rotating who did it, everyone sort of had an equal footing. And it just like, it was a really mundane thing, but it like transformed the whole group. And like, so everyone was then sort of presenting and like feeling much more like able to find their own voice and empowered. Great, yeah, and what I, because what I think uh, I find really exciting about this example and what it reminds me of um, in the research is this idea of um, trusting one another and, and the importance of mutual trust in, in meetings and in political education spaces. Um, and one of the things that um, came up uh, when speaking to people who were participating in um, these political education projects was that people talked about how the experience of being trusted by other people and of coming to trust each other um, those experiences were super transformative and enabled them to engage in ways that they hadn't been able to engage before in political spaces. Um, so, for example, one participant who talked about um, having been in left-wing meetings where they felt patronised before as a working-class activist, um, they came to a particular um, political education project, and for the first time they felt like they were being spoken to as a, a co-creator of knowledge, as, as a kind of equal participant um, they felt like uh, the facilitators um, knew that they could handle the information, uh, they could get their heads around the ideas, um, and that experience of not being patronised um, and being trusted um, to be uh, a co-creator in that space and it, um, was really significant and meant that he felt more like he belonged on the left and felt more confident in his, in his activism. Um, and another person I spoke to talked about um, having felt tokenized in left-wing spaces before um, and felt used. Um, and for him, um, attending one of these political education um, projects that was a very sort of a long 10-week um, uh, project, um, which had a lot of space for kind of building relationships. Um, so after every session, he would go to the pub and get to know people. And for him, that experience of building trust with other people in the group and building real friendship gave him the, the motivation to get back involved in activism and, and the confidence to take action with people um, despite having that kind of that experience. Um, and I think sometimes um, we can get stuck in thinking on the level of like a format or sort of fetishizing a particular format. But what this, um, what the interviews made me think about was what's the kind of social relation at the, at the base of what we're trying to do and um, what does it mean to really have mutual trust um, in a space um, and in particular, what do we do where this trust has been eroded in the past as well? Um, and I think building this kind of relationship in mu of mutual trust is something that gets um, harder the more, the more kind of diverse and varied our spaces become as well. And I guess, I mean, just to leave it there, I guess what we were thinking about, so there's this radical sort of pedagogical theorist called Bell Hooks, um, and she wrote that, you know, as, as teaching spaces become more diverse, there's this tendency for, like, social domination and power relations to be reproduced in the classroom setting. So I think for us, you know, what the challenge for us and the left in general is, is, you know, our movement comes more diverse, which it, which it has to do if it's going to flourish. How do we, you know, as sort of thinkers, activists, make sure that we don't allow these forms of domination to be reproduced in our own spaces? Brilliant. Peter and Fiona from T2T Research Group. We are now drawing our meeting to a close. Um, and, ah, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's good to hear.
people want it to continue forever. Um, we are ending with any other business, and returning to, to the stage is TWTFM's Poet Laureate, Mr. Ben Norris. Um, all good? He is going to um, perform a, a poem about today. Is it improvised? Is yeah, it's not improvised, which is why I'm holding all the words okay. in, in my hand. Um, <laughs> but I have written some bits of it while I've been sitting there, tried to be a bit responsive to what's happened in the meeting, um, as I think should happen at the end of a meeting. Um, so, um, yeah, this is called Any Other Business. Um, and if it's crap, that's because it's very new. So that caveat <laughs> is, is now out there. Any Other Business. Oh, this is more of a, a comment than a question. Oh my God, this interminable session. Okay, I'm gonna speak. I'm gonna motherfucking speak. For the last 20 minutes, I've been on the brink. I have a point that makes me look good, which happens to be what I actually think. I'm raising my actual hand. Oh my God. Quick breath, sweaty knees. Here we go. They haven't noticed. My camera's off. For fuck's sake, no one knows. I'm raising my digital hand. Oh my God. But all in the service. Of what? Any other business mightn't care, but we're in the business of change. These aren't meetings just to plan more meetings. So comrade, let the minutes state over Pinot Grige or orange squash. With time to spare or under the cosh, it matters not. There's the fash to quash. So we meet. <laughs> 200 strong or just in pairs in a disused barn on plastic chairs or in a brighter circus tent or in a Brighton circus tent. Who cares? We meet. You can disown your fam or bring your mum. You can cut the flowers, but the spring will come with the standing orders understood by some. We meet. We whoop, we holler, and we stamp our feet. We'll politely say, well, I disagree. We breathe in deep, we fucking tweet. <laughs> Take a minute, have a tea. In Utopia, there's still custard creams. We clipboard up and we hit the streets. We won't concede. There is no final victory, just as there's no final defeat. We're judged by the things that we do. The fire, the passion, the action, the heat. And in order to do, we must meet. Then someone disbands it, we clap, and we leave. That was amazing. Well, that's it. We hope you enjoyed this live recording of TWTFM and that it's left you feeling energised and inspired to spice up your next political meeting so you can start organising for the change we urgently need. But before I disband this meeting, make sure you like, subscribe and tell your friends about TWTFM. A new season is already in the works, so stay tuned. Until next time. <laughs>